You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello and welcome to the Guidepost 2023. We're closing in on 100 episodes. How exciting. Never, ever would have imagined that uh, that we would go this far or that people would actually listen to us. But we appreciate all y'all um, for, for playing this podcast. It is still far exceeding all of our expectations. And we have a pretty special podcast right now today for y'all um you know we had a huge uh huge outpouring of support for our false albacore project and everyone really got on board you know obviously with the acoustic tagging and we're getting we're getting that data back but very quietly a week or so ago we got the dna results back from the fin clip uh, study that we did to kind of piggyback on the acoustic study. And um, my brain is pretty feeble and unable to really uh, properly communicate that information. So we brought the DNA scientist himself onto the podcast as well as a frequent frequent uh guest on the podcast our our board member uh captain tom roller who participated in the spaghetti tagging as well as the fin clips and is kind of our resident uh albi policy guru so i'm going to introduce uh everyone let them kind of start talking y'all can all thank god because i'm probably not going to talk too much on this podcast i know you're sick of hearing my voice but without further ado Uh, We got Steve Bogdanowitz, who is the DNA uh, researcher scientist from Cornell University, and Captain Tom Roller. Why don't you all kind of introduce yourselves and take it from me? Yeah, thanks, Tony. Um, uh, Like Tony said, I'm Steve Bogdanowitz. I'm sitting up here in central New York and looking out the window, wondering if winter is ever going to show up, which it hasn't yet. Uh, we've probably gotten five inches all year and Buffalo's gotten 12 feet. So uh, I don't know, I guess, uh, depending on your perspective, that's either lucky or unlucky. So, uh, so yeah. So um, I don't know, Tony, if you'd like a, a quick summary of the, of the results that I sent ASGA or. Well, you know, uh, Steve, you know, it would be really, I'll tell you what would be funny as heck. If you just kind of maybe just tell the story of how we got connected. And then start okay. talking about the results okay. because, you know, we right. like to humanize all this stuff. And this is just, this is just our membership behaving like we hope our membership behaves and making these connections uh, okay. and then watch it, watch it just, you know, explode. Um, so how, how did, how did we get in touch with you, Steve? How did all that happen? It's a pretty funny story. You know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I looked at my email Last night it was September first of of last year, and I think I had just read a blog 
from off the ASGA site. And, and the sentence that, that caught my eye was, are the Albies we're catching off of Florida the same as the Albies that we're catching up, up north? Um, and I thought sort of a light bulb went off and I thought, well, I think I can answer that question. Um, so I did what I always do when I think about saltwater fishing. I contacted Vinny Catalano. And uh, I said, "Hey, Vinny." So I, I basically, I basically peppered Vinny with with all sorts of of questions that I think he was getting the ready to go out, you know. And and pretty quickly, Vinny said, "Hold on, big fella. Um, let me put you in touch with people I know at the ASGA." And I don't know, Tony. I think I think in a um, just a couple of days we had a Zoom meeting, and just in a couple of weeks we were talking about putting putting. Uh, sampling kits together. Um, so being early September, I, we were sort of up against it because the Albies were basically already up in the Northeast and I'm sure off of North Carolina as well. And, you know, the speed with which you and, and, and Sue Bertolini um, pulled those sampling kits together and got them distributed to guides was, was remarkable in, in, in my mind. Um, and you know, thanks also to all the people who who contributed, including Tom. Uh, these these clips from from North Carolina, Massachusetts, and New York, primarily. Most of the clips are from North Carolina. Um, but yeah, it was it was just one of those serendipitous moments, I guess. That that I I, I just felt like let's do something. You know? Yeah. And it, the crazy thing is you're, you know, you're an Al, Vinny kind of told me you're an Albie nut, right? I mean, you love, you love your Albie. So you got to get to take all of your education, everything that you work towards. And, and now you get to put it towards something that you're really passionate about, which is frankly, to me, that's what life is all about. I mean, I did not, I am not in this career because my modeling, uh, my modeling career fell through. Um, you know, that is, that is not how I found my way into this. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lifelong passion. And I just figured, you know, live a life you'll remember and, uh, you know, do do something that you love because you're going to spend an awful lot of time doing it. So it might as well not suck. So, you know, we got immediately got that zoom meeting. Um, you educated the heck out of us on DNA and we had already kind of started, uh, you know, accumulating that science through the acoustic tags. And we saw this as a perfect supplement to be able to package this information up and share it with managers because Albies are an incredibly data poor species. And our, you know, our community does 500,000 trips a year uh, for these things. And, you know, there, there's a different value placed on them as you go up and down the coast. Some people view them as bait. Some people, you know, pursue them relentlessly and, and, you know, kind of, kind of appreciate them for their sport fishing. Um, you know, there's even certain segments where it's a food fish. Uh, and, and when you look at all the landings, you look at all the effort, you know, understanding that it's so data poor, it is a heavy lift to even get these things for consideration for management. So the more that we can understand about them, the, the, the less heavy that lift is. So it's really cool, I think, that we're all rowing in the same direction 
and and doing all this work and just going to put it on the feet of the managers and say this is what we found out. So speaking of that, Tom, you were out there tagging. I mean, you were and and getting those fin clips. That makes you feel good on those trips, right? Like, how did your clients feel when you told them, like, hey, we're taking fin clips? They lost their marbles, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I could talk about that at length. But one of the first things I want to mention is, is in regards to ASGA putting this study together. Because, you know, I'm a full-time fishing guide, but I also am a full-time volunteer, basically, in the fisheries management sector, sitting on my state commission, as well as the federal council advisory panels, was that... In the whole fisheries management world, when I was describing to people this DNA clip study we were doing through multiple states and uh, doing it in this way, it was a three-day time period. Is that right? Was, is that right? I can't remember how many days it was. Three-day time period. And yeah, time was, it was pretty much like the shorter, the better. We were hoping exactly. to get, get everything done within pretty much five to seven days, I guess. But, but So, think Tom, about, think, think about this. New York, Cape Cod, North Carolina, fall weather. Three ready, days. set, go. You have three to five days and, to and, snip all these fish, right? I mean, not a, not exactly this. an easy ask, right? And we coordinated this in less than, what, five weeks? We had the kits to everybody. We had everybody trained. We had a communications. And we got a ton of samples. I mean, people in the scientific community could not believe we put this together in a two-month two period. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I've participated in fin clip studies, cobia, tarpon. Uh, I did a little summer flounder genetic project about seven, eight years ago. So I'd done fin clips before and, you know, doing spaghetti tags and whatnot with customers. I'm always real sensitive about people's time, like, you know, cause you're spending time doing this and stuff. But what I have found nine times out of 10 is people get so excited. Right. And um, what was really interesting about this three day albacore period was were a couple things was that I had a really diverse group of clientele, people that you may think were really excited about it, people you think maybe weren't very excited about it. And everybody thought it was the coolest thing ever and talking about it when to participate in it. But I will say, if you look at my my 10 samples uh, that I provided, most of them or I can't remember how many it was. It, it doesn't matter. But the majority came on one day and it was so rough. It was just, and I had this this great couple. What was really helpful is that they were lab scientists. <laughs> so they were so helpful in making sure that we. It was like four foot seas. And the fishing was great, but I, I'm not sure I could have gotten all that samples without their help and taking care of these fish and got them back in really good shape. So I really give them a lot of credit for that. So it was pretty fun. So, well, um, and you know, I I had never taken a fin clip from an albie. I didn't really know where to take it from. Uh, I'm thinking, so I'm thinking, okay, that membranous first dorsal fin, right, is is the one with the spines, that really thin membrane between, and yeah, I'm confident this is going to work like a charm. So we go off Montauk, my wife Christine and I are fishing Montauk with Vinny mid-October, and we're out there, and it's pretty snotty, I think, and um, I cut that membrane, and it was like cutting a soap bubble. The thing collapsed, it disappeared, it went away, and I said, this isn't going to work. And I remember texting from the back of a rolling contender back to Tony saying, Tony, don't tell people not to take that, that first dorsal. Let's try that second dorsal, that the very tip of that second dorsal. The thing you have to remember here is that you need very, very tiny amounts of tissue. We're talking about an amount of tissue that's maybe a third of an adult pinky nail or something like that. Um, 
and we switched to that second dorsal. Everything looked good. And, and I, I think I remember Tony was really happy because I, I suspect people had already been griping at Tony about that first dorsal was just not going to cut it for a sample. So, uh, oh, we had, uh, I actually I had did try it even after the email. I said, I'm going to see. And I was like, nah, that's not going to work. Uh, I also had a couple of sterilized fin clip kits that I hadn't used from another study. So I had a really, really good pair of lab scissors, which were helpful. Yeah, man, literally, like, uh, I got a, I got a couple of texts and emails that said, this is like clipping a jellyfish. Um, how the, how the heck are we going to do this? And like, you, that you know lord works in mysterious ways man uh you sent that text when i was like oh god you know like because you get that stuff and you're like here we go uh we're gonna this is gonna be a mess and then you know boom you had the answer right away sent that out uh, you know but look these are these are the problems when you do something new that's never been done before and and uh, your ability to be flexible and kind of work on the fly with this and and the quality of guides that we had doing it that were you know so bought into the whole thing and and it will i really wouldn't say it was complaining you know it was like an aware i got a lot of awareness texts and emails pretty quickly but uh but you know bam we had the answer right there never heard another thing about it um everyone sent their stuff in, you know, really quickly, it was super efficient, you know, the whole again, the whole team rowing in the right direction. So Steve, you, you get this information, and start working through it. And let's, let's talk about some of the stuff that you're pretty confident about that you found out. And we're gonna, folks, just so everyone knows, when Steve's talking about this, we're really hopeful that we're going to be able to do this again in 2023 i put it in a very likely category that we're going to be able to do this but none of this stuff is cheap and none of this stuff is uh <laughs> shoot you know this is where you know much like tom said he has the two research scientists on the boat and they were so helpful with him i think a lot of times you know, average anglers hear that such and such research is going on, or they're, they're fin clipping this, or they're doing that. And they're just kind of on the peripheral on the outside looking in. Maybe they don't get the result, you know, don't get the results. They don't feel like they kind of feel detached from it. You know, we, we are asking the angling, angling community to rally around us, because we are not, you know, Cornell University, and we are not, you know, a, a well-funded science lab or a, an aquarium or anything like that. And we're just hobbling this together and, um, and doing it the best that we can, you know, with the one caveat that it has to be, you know, good, reviewable, acceptable science, because otherwise our credibility goes out the window. And that's why we have such a high confidence level in Steve and what he does at Cornell and and again, it costs money. So, you know, all I can say is the listeners of this podcast, there are going to be ways that you can contribute. Every little bit helps. We know that the the the, the bills are kind of staggering on this one, but we know the community is going to rally around it. And um, and it kind of gives you a it kind of gives you an opportunity to participate on this in this stuff in in whatever way you can. Not all people are capable of the same amount of uh, support. But I think everyone is capable of a little bit of support. So, 
I'm, I'm popping off my soapbox there, my plea for support. Um, and this is where the cool stuff happens. And, you know, Steve, I'll, I'm going to prime the pump and just say, from the preliminary results, from the almost 80 fin clips that you studied, the one thing that jumped out at me that I was like, holy mackerel, I can't, pun intended, I can't believe this, was in that short time span, in those three very different geographic areas, you found out that these things were essentially one stock of fish. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, Tony. Um, so just to give a real brief background on, on you know, how the assay works. Um, so as you said, we have 77 um, Albi fin clips. Tom, yours are the last 12. And um, I worked with a set of markers called microsatellites. Uh, these, are, these are just simple, repetitive DNA sequences that you're, you're going to find scattered across the albacore, false albacore genome. And the first thing you have to do is find them and develop PCR primers that flank these repeats. All right. So we took one of those Montauk fish that we caught with Vinny in October and we sent it to a sequencer and, and it, 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 it was a library that was enriched for these repetitive microsatellites. And from that information, we could design the PCR primers that allowed us to then go to extracted DNAs from the 77 fin clips and collect what are called multi-locus genotypes, all right? So we had we ended up with 77 false albacore fin clips at 68 unique microsatellite loci. A locus is just a place in the albacore genome. I don't really know where it is yet. Nobody does. Um, it's just a place. Each locus has two alleles because albies, just like us, get one copy from dad and one copy from mom. Okay, so think of what we're doing is we're assaying genetic variation at 68 unique repetitive places in the false albacore genome, collecting that information, compiling that information, sending it to software that has the ability to look at those data and say, okay, how many groups do I see? And the answer to that question is one. So of those 77 false albacore samples, the, both two different softwares that that um, that I use to analyze the data, which are really are based on very different sorts of models, um, or in one case, a lack of models, uh, both came to the same conclusion that what we're looking at from those 77 samples is a single genetic group of fish. Tom, uh, you know, I, I, this is what I heard um, a lot, was that there's no way that those kind of smaller fish in Cape Cod are the same fish in North Carolina because they're your, you know, albies are, are by and large so much bigger um, than well, those can be fish. Bigger, right. We get small yeah, fish well, too. Yeah, yeah. Stereotypically, you know, generally speaking, if you want to catch a big albie, North Carolina or Florida, and, and, and obviously size, you know, these things grow. So size should not be a determining factor if you think it's the same stock of fish. But I think that was the that was the misconception in the angling community. Now, Steve, I think Tom was the first one to notice what because I immediately sent him the report because he's a giant fish nerd like me. And I knew he would he would just jump all over it. We actually found 
tagged fish that were related? Like there was one pair. Did did we read that wrong? That there was there were two fish that it almost looked like they came in and they were those fish were related to each other. Did no, I? Did I? No, but yeah, no. I, I guess you read that wrong, Tony. Um, okay. The you know it's it's I have not done the relatedness um, uh-huh. analysis yet, but just even just looking eyeballing the data, these and, and it's a good point. I'm glad you brought this up. These 77 fish. Okay, when I when when we say that they belong to one genetic group, mm. okay, what we mean is that the variation that we see is not partitioned among groups of fish. It's as if you took those seventy-seven fish, and all the variants that you see are sort of spread evenly among those seventy-seven fish. There's no there are no groupings of fish that appear to be different colors, if you will. Okay, that doesn't mean that these fish are closely related to each other in a parent offspring brother sister uncle nephew uncle niece first cousin second cousin third cousin sense these albies and and again i haven't even done that analysis yet but i'm i'm 99.99% certain that each and every one of these albies is completely unrelated to each other in a in a familial sense you know at at, at the family level okay and i think i think what you picked up on tony um in in my first report was something that's called the probability of of exclusion identity okay and what that probability is is asking if we take two false albacore randomly based on these 77 samples if we take two false albacore at random from the north atlantic okay what's the probability that they're going to be identical at these 68 microsatellite loci and it's a it's a number that is so small it's way smaller it, it it's 10 to the minus 138 so it it's effectively zero in other words the 68 microsatellite loci that we have here could easily distinguish each and every albi in the north atlantic as an individual fish even though as a group those fish all belong to the same genetic cluster uh, I hope I hope that makes sense. I mean, some of these, you know, this is this can be this sometimes is hard for me to wrap my brains around, you know, to think to think that we could literally ask, are we catching the same fish twice? Ever, anywhere, ever. So let me ask that this is somewhat related to the fam- familial thing is. This sort of population genetic work has been really important in a lot of stock assessments and other species in determining how we manage these individual populations through different regions. Uh, We had a similar study done in North Carolina for southern flounder, which helped differentiate uh, the Gulf population of southern flounder from the South Atlantic population, also determining it was a multi-state stock, which has driven a lot of management in this state. So I think from that perspective, correct, I mean, I... I'm I'm just a dumb fisherman, as people like to say. But I, I guess the big takeaway here, right, is that the fact that you can determine that they are like one genetic stock is the that's the big takeaway we should be taking away from this, right, in layman's terms. Um, Tom, so Tom, it's a it, it's a preliminary takeaway okay. based on our our initial set of samples. If you remember, the, you know, the initial sentence that got me started in this was, are the albies we're catching off of Florida 
the same as the Albies were catching off of New York. We haven't answered that question yet because we don't have any samples from Florida. We don't have oh, any samples from the Gulf of Mexico. We don't have any samples from the Yucatan. Albies are obviously um, um, they're on both sides of the Atlantic. I, I think I think on our side they run from the northeast all the way down to Brazil, if not further south than Brazil. On the other side, they're from the United Kingdom and Spain down to South Africa, I believe. Um, one of the things we would like to determine, yes, we've established that uh, of this initial tiny, really, sample of 77 false albacores, we don't see multiple genetic groups. Well, maybe we don't see multiple genetic groups because we simply haven't sampled adequately yet, either in space or in time. Um, so if we go to Florida, if we go to the Gulf of Mexico, if we go to the Yucatan, and I recognize that the further afield we go, the more academic that question becomes. I mean, the ASGA is really interested in managing this as an East Coast fishery. Do, does the ASGA really care if false albacore in Spain are different than ones in Massachusetts, you know? Managerially, that's an interesting question, right? Because, you know, that's something we see in a lot of our HMS species as well, our tunas, as well as our, um, you know, it's a big question we have right now during for mahi-mahi management, right? Is this an international stock? How big is the stock? You know, and if we were to determine that it was an international fishery, I think that would have some really big uh, uh, fisheries management implications, right? So I guess the question I would ask you as a scientist was like, so we've determined that this small sample set is likely, you know, one stock of fish. What if we had determined that it was, multi, you know, several smaller populations? We'd probably be looking at it at a different way. Would that be right? Um, and so I guess that here we have this one sample set. I guess the question we're asking now is how do we expand that to see, you know, if there are other populations in Atlantic? Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah, and, and 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 another important point that we haven't really touched on yet is, um, you know, you know when when folks do stock structure analyses of redfish or striped bass, they're they're actually sampling the spawning populations, right? So you're going into the Kennebec or the Hudson or the Delaware, you know, Delaware Bay or Chesapeake Bay to sample spawning fish. We don't really know, to my knowledge anyway, um, when and where false albacore are spawning. I guess there's some there's some sort of guesses that they're moving into deep water, maybe they're moving into the Gulf Stream. Um, but we're, it, it's important to remember that we're not sampling fish, false albacore, that are actively spawning. And that's actually a bit of a handicap to a study like this, because what we're relying on when we, when we took that sort of spatial snapshot this past fall over a relatively narrow time window, is we're saying, okay, Let's imagine that we have false albacore out there as separate spawning stocks that are coming back together and moving up and down the coast. We would still be able to detect that as multiple groups, even though we don't know where those groups are being recruited from necessarily. Um, to, answer, to answer your other question about sort of how far afield would one go, I, you know, I, I guess it... it the sky's the limit. I mean, one could go as far south on this side of the pond as they go, and one could go over to Europe and get fish from Spain. Or, or... we do, Steve. We do have some volunteers for the St Spain crew. Um, we we picked those up via email the other day. Um, yeah. We had we had our team. Some of our team members volunteered to go to Spain 
to uh to collect alvi samples we don't we don't know if we have the budget yet for that tom but uh i'm going i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna go out on a limb i'm gonna go out on a limb here even even though it's gonna be forever written into this podcast um that that albies from uh sort of european waters are going to be distinct from what we have over here yeah if you look at, if you look at those fish on the internet just the markings on those fish they're they're pretty different than than what we have over here I guess I didn't realize that. You know, that's really interesting. Yeah, they're check big. out, check out some pictures. Fish. Yeah, check out some pictures. Um, they have, they have, you know, our albies sort of have that one series of spots mm-hmm. um, coming up from their, from their, I guess, from their pectoral fin. Um, but the pictures that I was seeing from a Spanish market that, you know, clearly it's a false albacore because it has those vermiculations on the back. But these these guys had multiple rows of of belly spots on them. Um, it, it just looks like a different fish to me. Um, so. I mean, they also have Sarda Sarda, Atlantic Benito, right? And I mean, the, the size of the fish that are caught in the Azores and off the uh, of Atlantic Benito, off the Mediterranean, are vastly, so much bigger than the fish that we catch in the East Coast. Yeah, Tom, if you look at those those European albies, they almost look like a small bluefin. They look like a 15 or 20 pound bluefin with albie markings. It's a it's just a it it looks like a more robust fish uh even even same size so steve you you mentioned redfish and i want you know because another that's in another important species for tom but we were on the phone earlier and i basically said stop talking because this is podcast fodder but tom i don't know if you knew this you may i didn't but steve was talking about actually being able to determine population from taking samples from adult fish and juvenile adult fish during the spawn and juvenile fish after the spawn. And I'm not going to do it justice, but Steve, could you, so we'll just use a redfish as an example. We know they spawn. One of the spawning aggregations is around Virginia beach. So if if we went out and took a thousand samples of adult redfish before during you know during that spawning aggregation, and then turned around and took a thousand samples from juvenile redfish in the Chesapeake Bay where that larva is getting washed into Rudy Lynn Haven any of the tributaries, what what would that tell us? Because this blew my mind. I was not I was not expecting this and I didn't know DNA could tell us this. Yeah, so Tony, um it, it's a relatively new um protocol. It's called close kin mark recapture. Um folks here at Cornell and Natural Resources have been doing it with smallmouth bass uh in the Adirondacks, with brook trout in the Adirondacks. And I know that there have been studies on, uh, uh, I saw a dissertation online that, that someone did a pilot study using this technique on stripers in the Chesapeake. Essentially, as you said, if you collect a sample of adult fish that are, that are spawning, and ideally, if you then collect a mixed sample of, of the, the young of the year from that spawning event and look for parent offspring matches, Okay. The proportion of parent and offspring matches you find relative to the total number of fish that you sampled or 
or typed, if you will, is a uh, direct estimate of abundance. That's how that works. So you kind yeah, of get there, there's some there's some assumptions there that have to be met. Like I said, the young of the year should be the young of the year fish need to be well mixed. Obviously, if you took all these fish from a single nest, you, that would blow that that would blow that estimate to kingdom come. But from right? broadcast spawners, yeah, sure, where yeah. the current's pulling the larva into an estuary, you know that mixing naturally occurs. It's not like you know you said they had done it for smallmouth. It's not like they're yanking the eggs off one nest. Um, you know, or, you know, the territoriality of nesting fish versus broadcast spawners. I mean, I, I think that probably lends itself a little bit more. So basically, you know, what you're saying is you, you do the adults and then you do the young of the year and you get those matches. And from that, you can basically extrapolate the popul you know, population densities, Right. Population size. Yep. So yep. isn't that a yep. it, you know, I've got a I've got a friend who works at uh USGS in uh he runs it in the, the West Virginia lab. And he was basically telling me that there there's DNA studies now where they can like pull a gallon of water from the Hudson and basically look at fish pee because it doesn't last for very long in the water and they can tell you how many herring are in the river coming up the river to spawn. And this uh, kind of sounds familiar. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a whole nother, another sort of branch of, of DNA research called environmental DNA, um, which we, we, we actually do quite often here. Um, and you're right. You can, you could go to Montauk, for example, and filter. Steve, my point is you keep talking, but my point is yeah. here, I kind of have a lot more faith in what you're talking about and this gallon of water than I do in, a, you know, a trammel net study or a long line study or kind of the old ways that we do things now where, you know, the variability could be like, you know, you put them that that survey net you put in two days early or two days late and you miss that big spawning pulse, you know, this is to me, this is a lot more accurate science that could give us a lot more accurate numbers that could be used to make stock assessments more accurate. And I, Tom, I think that's what we fight for constantly because management is only as good as the numbers. So if we could really define things a little bit better and give managers better science, I think we'd probably have a brighter future. Or more importantly, it's also the more data you have, the better you off, right? And so also, you know, updating some of those data sets. And again, this is just from someone who has to make decisions based off the stock assessments. So so I don't I don't want to give Tony, I don't want to give anyone the impression that you can get a easily get abundance estimates from environmental DNA sampling. Okay. You can get, you can, assuming all your sort of assumptions are met, you can get really good abundance estimates from that close kin mark recapture that I talked about. Environmental DNA is tricky because you're going to, you're going to filter, I don't know, a liter of water, like you say, from the Hudson. And in truth, we've done that. And we found bluefish and stripers and flounder and all that stuff. But you never know in an environmental sample, if your if your DNA sequences are coming from a couple of fish that just swam by, or a hundred thousand fish that swam by an hour ago, 
You know, so it, it, it can be hard to, it can be really challenging. And in truth, one of my colleagues here, Jose Andres is, is sort of at the forefront of, of trying to work out how do we calculate abundance from an environmental DNA sample? And it's not a trivial, it's not a trivial mathematical problem. So just, I just wanted to make that clear that those two techniques are not, not sort of interchangeable with respect to estimating abundance. So I, I guess the other thing that I'd bring up is, you know, albies don't fall into this category because I don't think anyone's ever done DNA research on them before. But I think that there's, you know, and Tom, Tom works on a lot of these species, some of these species at the council that I'm going to mention. But, you know, you look at really economically important fish for us, uh, for us and commercial fishermen sometimes. You look at like redfish and Spanish mackerel, cobia, you know, these fish are poster children for warming waters, shifting stocks. And to be able to match up, you know, previous DNA studies and then use, you know, whenever those were done and then used kind of the more advanced technology that's available to us today, just like 10 years from now, the technology will be more advanced than it is today and, and figure out, you know, hey, wait, those fish in South Carolina are in the Chesapeake Bay now. Those, those fish that were in the Chesapeake Bay are off Long Island. Uh, and, and to be able to say that with 100% confidence. I mean, that, that would be a huge thing because I think one of the biggest challenges for all the managers now is that it's very well documented that a lot of these stocks are shifting and management is slow to react to that. Um, you know, as an example, North Carolina still has, you know, most of the summer flounder quota, that stock has shifted at least 200 miles North. So they're catching them and, you know, off the coast where other commercial fishermen would love to to be able to harvest those flounder and we're going off quotas that were set up decades ago and stuff has changed so kind of lining up those dots i think would make management much more efficient and nimble now and i and i think that's a huge huge problem that managers face i mean tom you know what what y'all are going through with spanish mackerel at the south atlantic council right now is like a prime example of this yeah, I, I mean, it's a multifold issue, right? I mean, obviously, the impacts of climate on these important species is huge, right? And we are, without a doubt, well behind eight ball there. Um, but also, you know, going back to the Albi thing, I want to, you know, give the ASGA credit for how this was approached. And correct me if I'm wrong, Tony, you know, when we started looking into these studies, we said, okay. If we're going to put people to work, we want to gather data which could move us towards stock assessment level science. Am I correct? Yeah, nodding your head. Um, because from my perspective, you know, as a recreational fisherman in the recreational industry, um, I get very frustrated. And I'm going to use albacore here as a poster child, false albacore, is they're such an economically important species. And for decades plus, we have been asking, the federal and state fisheries, hey, let's do something. And we, you know, what, what do we hear? We don't have any data. We don't have any data. Yet no one goes out to collect data. No one wants to do anything. And uh, I, I think frustration for me as recreational industry, it's because it seems to be there's this like dichotomy of 
well, if there's not a huge food industry for it, we really don't want to do much with them, right? Um, but why just because it's a catch and release, mostly recreational fishery doesn't mean that they're any less important, right? So I am so excited to see us going down this path of managing or collecting data for future management and taking it in on of itself to start this conversation, right? And I think that we have to do that when it comes to climate change, because if we're not doing it, you know, in the past, we're also going to have to look towards the future to take care of these really important species. So, um, you know, it's it's going to be, a, I don't know where I'm going with this, but obviously it's well, going to be a I'll more- tell you, I'll tell you the one thing, the other thing too that's right in our wheelhouse is it's proactive management. Exactly. Because yeah. let me tell you something, it sucks when you're in crisis management. That's, and, and that's then you, the majority of fisheries management. Crisis that's management. all of that's all we yeah. do. You know, you you don't start pushing the boulder uphill until you're two miles down the hill and the stock has already been obliterated. So what you know what we're saying is, okay, you know, there's been some peaks and valleys with Albies. We don't we don't know, but we don't think they're in a crisis right now. So let's put some reasonable regulations on them so we don't get in a crisis because frankly our guys can't afford to lose another fish and that's been our position and the other thing that was absolutely terrifying and kept me up at night was are are we going to get data back that these things do not live when we catch and release them and i think the, the the acoustic tagging shot that argument down but it's it's not like it's not like i knew or the guides association knew beforehand that these things were going to live, um, you know, with a 90% return rate on our acoustic tags, that's shocking. It's awesome. Um, and then you supplement that and you complement that with, with Steve's DNA work. And we're actually learning a lot about the species. Um, and you know, Tom, I, you've been doing this a while too, but you do it with different species I cannot think of another data collection, and I'm going to say pure science, because we went into this with no expectations. We were not trying to, some some people perform science with the end in mind. I want to put a tag in a striper to show they're all offshore now. That's because that's what I want to do. I'm going to put this thing in the stripe. I'm going to show they're all offshore and the striper population is fine. Let's buy some tags. That really isn't great science because you're doing it to prove an assumption that you have. We had no assumptions. We, we just don't want these things to go away because, we, again, we can't afford to lose another species. I mean, bluefish are suck. Uh, stripers are, you know, 25% below the threshold about there. Um, a lot of places, summer flounder aren't there anymore. And what's a weak fish? So when you get right down to it, we're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel right now. And we just kind of threw a Hail Mary and said, you know, okay, we've heard you don't have any data. We're going to give you some. In two years, you're not going to be able to look at me and say that. Yeah. So, Tom, you know, you mentioned when when in the push to get Albies under a, an, an FMP, um, you know, one, one of the one of the responses you get is there's no data. You know, if you had to characterize what what would be the sort of top 
two or three or four types of data that you would need from a uh, you know a, a, an unmanaged fishery like this to 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 move things in the right direction managerially i mean what are we talking about revenue are we talking about um palatability what i mean what 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 are the sorts of things that 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 councils want to see um with respect to yes now you have enough data and now we can put this under a management plan sort of a scenario that that's a good question and and i wish i could answer it with a little bit more clarity because again you know as a decision maker you know we're not always the ones asking you know asking what the good data inputs are right so um because I'm actually the one asking that on the council, right? Saying we have this really important fish. We have the commercial landings. We have the recreational landings. We have the recreational catch estimates. We know it's worth a lot of money. We know there's a lot of trips. What do we do to manage this fishery? Um, and this is where, and I'm going to be on my soapbox here as a state fisheries manager. My state says, well, it's a big population. We don't, can't really do anything with it. Take it to the interstate, the ASMSC, and I'm going to quote the ASMSC director who said, I will run screaming from the room. He said this on the record, if we do an interstate management plan for false albacore. And then the council says, well, you know, they're not really an ecosystem component species. They're not really a forage fish. And, oh, it'll pick a lot of, uh, we don't have stock assessment level data forms. We can't perform a stock assessment, so we can't do an FMP form. So everybody does this, and I'm pointing in both directions. And what do we get? Nothing. He did actually Nothing. say that on record. That is on the record. He said yeah. he would run screaming run. from the room. Uh, I can I can pull that audio clip if anyone wants. It was said to. twice actually. So I think he's a great guy. <laughs> great guy. Great guy. And and he has great reasons I think for saying that. But man, eh, well, man, eh, whatever. Um, but my point is, but still, it's just a big circle. And so the question we have, you know, as state, you know, appointed managers, is like we have an important fishery what can we do? Can we do anything? And it's just a complicated question under the law. And that's where the lawyers get involved and whatnot. So, you know, we're trying to start somewhere because we hear, well, there's no data. Well, why aren't we trying to gather some? And that's, again, that's a reflection of tight budgets and the disasters we face on fisheries, right? And I mean, it's, you know, we've got our Spanish mackerel, which is an FMP managed fishery. And, you know, we've got problems with the stock assessment currently. And, you know, a lot of that is, you know, just inadequate data inputs, right? And inadequate lake distribution and, um, you know, and, and commercial catch. There's, there's, I don't want to go down that road, but we need more data for that fishery and that's managed under an FMP. And so it's even a more daunting task when we have a fishery like false albacore. And, and, you know, Tom, I'll throw one other thing in there is that, you know, catch rates and effort exploding in places like the Chesapeake Bay because this, the stock is, is moving north. Um, you know, God help them when they when they settle in New Jersey. Uh, I can't wait to can't wait to see the 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 catch rates from there. Um, but you know, we have you have all of these all of these questions and all of these problems. And I guess the way that I'm looking at this, kind of when you know when these opportunities are sitting in front of the guides association is. You know, why are you using a 10 cup and a string when you have a smartphone, right? The way that we do things is so antiquated in fisheries science uh, that there there are new and more efficient ways. I mean, it ain't cheap, but, you know, if these, if these, 
if any kind of data collection software comes out or these DNA studies or, or, you know, this tagging stuff. I mean, how much more efficient is that than putting somebody on the back of the boat and having them count fish, right? Um, it just seems to me that with the technology that we have these days, we have we can learn so much more about these fish um, and and what's going on with them than we could 50 years ago. And we have to stop doing the same shit that we were doing 50 years ago and start moving, moving to this and really kind of embrace, embrace, you know, the technology that we have at our fingertips now. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about that, Tom or Steve. I'm sure Steve would be on my bandwagon with that one. Well, and you know, related to that, Tony, I don't, I don't want to give anyone the impression that this is the final word on Albi. Um, Genetics, you know, we've taken a <laughs> seventy-seven. Oh, yeah, hey, that's why I was begging for money for year two. We're we're <laughs> we're we're way far away from the final word. Well, we've we've taken the first step, right? It's it's possible that we haven't seen multiple genetic stocks of Albies because we haven't sampled adequately in space or time. That's really the bottom line. And yeah, Tom, Tom, I see you. Go. So, so, Steve, let me ask you this. You know, we, we've done this preliminary study, and as a scientist, and I'm not going to say given, let's say given reasonable funding levels, we've touched a little bit. Where would you like to see this go next so that we could learn more about the population of this fish genetically in the hopes that it could be used for fisheries management? Um, I would cast a broader net geographically, both in on this side of the Atlantic and perhaps on the other side of the Atlantic. Um Again, recognizing that, yeah, I, I, not knowing exactly how an, an international um, sort of a, a flavor to this is going to impact um, getting these under an FMP over here. So I'd like to see a broader geographic net cast. Um, and there's also the possibility that that fish you find off of off of Montauk or North Carolina in September are not necessarily the same fish you're going to find in November. Um, so a temporal component to sampling might be important as well. It's it's entirely possible that, you know, we, we took we took the best snapshot we could last year and find one genetic stock. We may take a fundamentally different snapshot this year and get a, get a different answer. All we have now currently is a hypothesis that is only good until it's disproven. So, okay, um, so okay, so we have a temporal aspect. So we want to sample more over the course of a year in different places. Would you characterize the study in the same way, such as short periods of time with a group of people collecting data over like three days a week or something like that? Or would you want to see more of like, I mean, how how would you look from it from a scientific angle to get to get good data if you were to, uh, to to brought, let's say, across the United States, if you wanted to do more sam- you know, more more temporal sampling over the year, and also more places. What would you want that to look like? I mean, intuitively, I think I think broader geographic sampling is gonna is gonna give us a more clear answer more quickly than than perhaps. It, it's hard to imagine that you've got these sort of temporally um, discrete genetic stocks parading off of the east end of Long Island um, from September to November. Is it is it impossible? No. Is it likely? Nah, I'm not so sure about that. But going into the Gulf of Mexico or going to Spain or or Central Africa or Brazil or the Yucatan and determining are those groups the same as what we're seeing or what we just saw this year, 
I think that's probably going to be a much clearer answer um, in terms of where these Tom, boundaries Tom, are. For, Tom and for I the- volunteer for Spain and the Yucatan. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I'm ha- I'm pretty happy with the East End of Long Island myself. So, <laughs> you know, in Beaufort, North Carolina, ain't too bad either. So, right, you know, my home yeah. waters is pretty great. Yeah, but. Uh, but but I but I like that conversation here for our listeners in the terms because it gives people the idea of what um, you know a further you know looking at this further could look like right particularly for for management because it's been amazing to me is how much positive response we get not just to these studies but to our Albacore initiative in general and we we go to our our members in the fishing community and say hey no, we want to do more work on Albuquerque. We want to collect more data and, and people lose their minds. We get more interest in that than just about anything else. That's, that's really, really exciting. Right. And, uh, I, you know, and I have, I, you know, I, when, when, when I've had multiple customers who fished with me and had some samples, they've all asked me if there's any data back from that yet. They reached out to me and said, Hey, did you get anything back from that study? Uh, I mean, at least over the last couple, couple months. And I, I, I've heard from a few people who did, who tagging, you know, that's kind of a more usual thing, but the DNA stuff really, really gets, gets people interested. So, and I just think it's super exciting. Well, cool. You you know, I I think about there, it's entirely possible that there's a resident population of Albies in the Gulf of Mexico. Does anyone know that that definitely isn't true? Um, um, Maybe, maybe they're, Maybe they're just staying there. Maybe maybe, they, maybe that's a component that doesn't migrate up and down the coast with the rest of them, and 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 they have had time to accumulate some genetic differences. You know, it, so, it, could it also be feasible that they all spawn there and their larva travels up the uh, uh, the Gulf Stream as well? When that could yeah, that be theoretically yeah, possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard of of um, from just talking to fishermen in the Gulf, I've heard of stories where, um, where they say there's huge concentrations of albacore offshore certain times of year. And, you know, people say they're spawning, but we hear a lot of anecdotal information from fishermen. Oh, I see tarpon spawning in North Carolina. Well, maybe, but probably not. Right. So particularly Tom, since they spawn wait. in deep water off the Gulf Stream and no one's going to see that. Yeah. yeah. So, listen to this. So, you know, it, when Steve and I had the conversation, you know, to kind of prep him for this call today, um, he said something that was pretty fascinating to me and it's not, not something, you know, we're doing yet, but when you start to look at the usefulness of this fin clip DNA research and to answer questions on climate change from a real simple, and I'll let Steve explain this. So it's scientifically accurate, but from my my caveman Zoolander understanding of what the words coming out of his mouth were is essentially, you know, when you see these fish pushing north, this vanguard, the first ones that are pushing the furthest north. And I'd use like cobia as an example with, with how many cobia were caught off New York this year, it was like staggering or even, even that, the population of black sea bass that's in Cape Cod right now that wasn't there years ago. From what Steve was saying, if if enough research was done and enough samples were taken, you could actually find specific genetic DNA microsatellites, if I use the term correctly, that make those fish 
more suitable to be the ones that push north, kind of like the tortoise on the Galapagos that had a longer neck because the plants, the fruit on the plants was hanging a little bit higher. And those are the ones on that island that succeeded. You know, this is some Darwin shit going on. Um, kind of that Steve was saying, and it, I'm going to shut up now, but Steve explained that, you know, we could identify the subtle differences in a Spanish mackerel that make it the one that can go up to New York and they can catch them for a month out of the year now. Am, am I right on that? Did I get that right through the conversation, Steve? Kind of, sort of. Yeah, mostly. Um, the, um, it's be that's better than normal. So please continue. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, you know yeah climate change is big now right it's big in terrestrial systems it's big in big in marine systems it's um and there there's quite a bit of work being done on sort of the adaptations the genetic adaptations that allow or or i shouldn't say allow that are sort of filtered if you will or selected upon as as organisms expand their ranges basically which which in this day and age typically means north where it used to be very cold, but it's warming up now. Um, you know, there's a paper I have in the back of my mind uh, with with anchovies. Uh, I can't remember if it was in the Pacific, but they definitely found some some genetic variants in anchovies that seem to track different uh, characteristics of the water, uh, salinity, temperature. So yeah, as as Redfish, for example, move into Maryland or Virginia or New Jersey, one could imagine that maybe there are some genes in their nuclear genome or their mitochondrial genome that are sort of being selected um, as they make that transition into perhaps slightly cooler water, but water that's warm enough to allow them to go up there and start and start eating, you know? So Tom, do you remember that story back in the day? where they had that redfish hatchery, I think it was in Texas, and cold weather moved in and all the redfish died because they were Gulf redfish. And they pulled some brood stock from North Carolina because Atlantic redfish are more tolerant of cold. So all those, all those fish, and, and look, if I'm wrong on this, tell me I'm wrong. I seem to remember it, but all that, that brood stock that they have in the hatcheries, those are not Gulf redfish. They're actually Atlantic redfish, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not going to comment on that specifically because I can't say for certain whether they're North Carolina stock. But I do know it's been proven that North Carolina redfish have a higher cold tolerance than Gulf redfish. And that's been proven. And I believe speckled trout are the same way from North Carolina or the, you know, the mid-Atlantic states. Um, I, that's been discussed pretty as length, but my comments would be, you know, I've heard a lot of that third hand as well, so I couldn't comment on the Texas hatchery. But but I, I do believe you're right because I've also been, I believe there's been some criticism that, well, your, your stocking fish are from a different genetic area, so. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I did not use it to criticize a hatchery in Texas. Um, don't be afraid to send us money, Texas A&M. That wasn't a that wasn't a criticism of you in any way. I was more talking about the DNA differences between, you know, separate stocks of fish. Um, so please you know, send the hate mail somewhere else. 
Um, so, uh, and I'm sorry if I got any of that wrong. It's just, you know, you're going back 20 years of fishery stuff and you try to remember stuff accurately. So hopefully I, uh, I gave myself enough cover on that one, but I, I seem to remember that as well. You know, so, you know, yeah. can I just put, I, I just had a thought here in my stream oh, of consciousness. Well, let me earlier. put myself on well, mute. <laughs> but when, when Steve asked me earlier, like what sort of information do managers want to put false albacore under an FMP? The one thing that I, I that really stuck out to me after we had the, the brief conversation was that just starting to answer these questions is an important element of the, the thing because it prevents people who want to ignore it from ignoring it. Because what have we heard? Now oh, we don't have any, we don't know if they're one stock. We don't know if they, maybe every state has their own stock. So now as we gather this data and we hopefully fund and gather more data in the future. It's going to be harder for a state, say like Florida, which is less interested in managing this fish because they're less important there, right? Economically, because they have a lot more other species to fish for, to say, oh, well, maybe you have your own stock up there. Now, a state that they're very important to, like New York or North Carolina, can say, hey, see, y'all are catching our fish too, right? And as we answer these questions, it makes it, I think it sort of like corrals, corrals the doubters, I guess I would say. And it makes it harder for, those those gray areas to 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 be kind of the to dominate the discussion so and i think that's what's one of the most important things about looking at this sort of stuff there i'm, I'm done well that no that's 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 real helpful tom i, I mean, you know it's um i i don't really i'm not familiar with the inner workings of of fishery of management councils and whatnot and and um i i think you're right it, it's it you you can at least then point to something and say, well, yeah, now we know this, now we know A, now we know B, now we know C. So, um, so I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to give you a 30 second tutorial on fisheries policy. If you agree with the science, it's awesome. If you disagree with the science, it's crap. Um, yeah, if the That's science society at large, unfortunately, but <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of times we deal with the crazy lady in the moo moo, uh, at the subway station, throwing three day old McDonald fries at you when you walk by, like apparently they make their way into important positions on advisory panels, because that's what I feel like sometimes. Um, but <laughs> But, you know, uh, I, I think I think the most important thing for this is as an association, we're walking the walk, right? We're not coming into this with any preconceived notions. We've heard we don't have data. We're saying, okay, we'll get you the data. You know, we'll get it for you. And um, and I, I don't I don't know of any other groups that do that. I, I really don't. Um, you know, this is at the very simplest level. This is an important fish to our members and we want it to stay around. So, so grateful to Venny for introducing us to Steve and we could get this ball rolling. And, you know, like Tom said, people are jazzed up about this. Um, I think, you know, they've rallied to the cause and we didn't lose our shirts on the on the first year of all the Albi studies. But, you know, we certainly need more data and and we're certainly going to forge ahead in 2023 
and just figure it out and and make sure that we raise the money for it. And, you know, if the community responds the way that we think they will, um, I don't I don't think Albies are going to be the last fish that we we kind of use this multi prong approach of getting the angling com angling community involved, finding the right scientists to lead these programs, um, and and giving them pure scientific data, handing it over to the stock assessment folks, you know, wh whoever whoever needs it, and sharing it, and uh, and and just being hopeful that it's used to better manage the stuff because. Um, you know, that's, I think that's who we are, right? We're not going to sit in the cheap seats and complain. We're going to roll our sleeves up and get it done. And it's not easy. It's frankly, it's terrifying. Um, you don't know what it's going to tell you. But if, if you don't do it, I, I've got this kind of sick feeling in my stomach that nobody's going to do it. So we find that we, sometimes it seems like scientists like Steve literally fall out of trees or, you know, off the bow of a skiff, uh, whatever, whatever may be. But, you know, we find these people who are super passionate about fishing, who want to work with us and we find the funding and we cut them loose and, and let them do their thing. Um, I think that's one of the magical things about the guides association is that we, it's the passion of fishing that kind of brings all of us together and, and, People are better at stuff, you know, than, than we are. And you can't buy, try to be everything to everyone, but what you can do is be super passionate and find other passionate people who are really good at the stuff that you suck at. Um, and that's, that's kind of been our template since day one. So, I mean, I, I'm thrilled. I, I look forward to expanding this next year. Um, you know, more geographic, uh, area, have it spread out over more time. Um, you know, get the guys in Florida engaged on both coasts, find folks all the way to Texas that want to do this, talk to some folks in the fly fishing community in Europe and see if they can grab a couple of samples for us when they do their saltwater fishing over there. Um, and just basically sit back and wait for Steve to do his magic and look at the report and probably go, Holy shit. I wasn't expecting that. Um, which is kind of, kind of the fun in all of this. Right. Um, super interesting to me. And I'm just ever grateful for the community support, um, from our member guides, from the recreational community at large, we rely on it. You are all walking shoulder to shoulder with us on on all of these efforts. Um, you know, with without it, without y'all, we couldn't do it. So, you know, we're gonna um, we're gonna share that information that Steve found out as soon as the New England Aquarium can kind of uh, make their data set a little bit more robust with more downloads from receivers up and down the coast. We'll share that info. It's the acoustic stuff is really preliminary right now. So we're kind of keeping that, keeping that close hold. Uh, but it shouldn't be much longer until we can kind of un unroll that. But it's that, that stuff is just as incredible as this DNA stuff. Um, and, you know, basically looking forward to Albies returning uh, to the East Coast 
you know, in the spring and, and being able to kind of punch it into fifth gear and take all the lessons we learned from 2022 and apply them to 2023 and just keep on chugging. It's pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. So, you know, community rallying around each other. And and I, I want to thank Tom and Steve for joining us on this podcast. If you have any questions, please send them to comments at saltwaterguidesassociation.org. And if we read your comment or online, um, you can uh, you can win yourself a free pair of Costas, um, which everybody loves. Obviously, Costa is our sponsor. And we thank all of y'all for listening. And, uh, you know, we'll have another one of these podcasts up here shortly on another, another cool topic. Mm-hmm.